0: Hey, uh, before we open up God's Word, can I just pray for us again as we, as we dive in? Join me. Father God, we just come to you this morning and uh, we are unfocused, we are guilty, we are selfish, and we need you. God, no matter what we've been through this last week, no matter what we're facing tomorrow, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit in these next moments will open our hearts as Garrett already prayed to your word and to what your spirit may have to teach us in these moments. We know no other answer, no other hope, no other life apart from life in Jesus. And for those that are here that may be Wondering if that's really so, I pray that you would impress it upon their hearts, impress it upon all of our hearts as we look into your scripture this morning. God, be with those that hurt among us, be with those that grieve among us, those that are filled with anxiety or worry or doubt or fear. Please move in and through us. We pray for our world. We pray for our community around us. Would you help us to be agents of reconciliation ambassadors of Jesus, not just on Sundays, but as we go throughout our week this coming days. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. I want to ask you to do something this morning. I want everyone to get out a pen and a little card. Uh, As Fred mentioned, there's some cards in front of you. If you don't have physical paper that you can get to, uh, pull out that handy-dandy phone, okay, and just bring up a little note on your iPhone or whatever it is, I want you to actually write something down, okay? In fact, we're going to do a little census among us here this morning, okay? A census. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down your address. I know you know it. Write down your address, city, zip code. It's going to be relevant to the point we're going to make this morning from the passage, but go ahead and actually write down your address, okay? And then I'm going to survey us. I don't know how many years ago it was. It's probably been like five or six at this point, but as we were looking through the names and kind of the address list of our members and those who regularly worship with us we realized that uh, only about 50% of our folks had a Frisco address. So we decided to change the name of our church. Centennial Church hasn't always been the name of this church family here. Some of you know our, we are a church previously known as Fellowship of Frisco. So that actually happens more than five years ago. It was eight years ago. I think it was in 2011, if memory serves me. Correctly. So I want to do a census in 2019 here, okay? You've written down your address. We have some out-of-towners here I know, I'm aware of. So don't make fun of the Okies among us. It's easy target. How many of you have a Frisco address? Somebody help me too with this survey. Ron, you're kind of at the back. Look at the percentages here. I'm guessing that's about, about 50% probably still, right? Uh, let's try Plano. Okay, how about Allen? Allen, also A&M Aggies, apparently. you uh, Can always count on them for some participation. Uh, McKinney, I'm a McKinney address. Come on, get those proud hands up, McKinneyites. Who am I missing here? Little Elm. Right over there, heavy in that section. Someone said prosper. Do we have a couple prosper people? Okay, got a few snobs among us, great. Uh, Just kidding, you're always welcome. That's interesting to me. That's interesting to me, but here's, here's the point of the exercise, okay? Here's the point of the exercise. Get your paper back out, take your pen, or take your iPhone, pencil, whatever it is, okay? Circle that address, and then right below it, I want you to write this, exit out and say, this is not my home. This is not my home. Why am I saying that? I'm saying that this morning because we're going to look at a passage where we learn exactly that lesson. This is not our home, whether it's Frisco Allen, McKinney, Prosper, whatever. Guess what? This is not your home. Did anyone write down the city or the area of Pontus or Cappadocia or Bithynia or Asia by chance? No, none among us. I'm so disappointed and surprised. Right up here, the letter of 1 Peter, Peter is writing to these Names up here in red. These regions, actually, of Cappadocia, Pontus, Galatia, Asia, Bithynia. And what he tells them in the first couple verses of his letter is, you may be from those areas, but guess what? You have a different identity. You have have a different identity. This is not your home. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter. We began a brand new series here. Uh, We're going to be in it for quite a while. Uh, And I just want to read this morning the first two verses. That's all we're going to get to today, okay? And then we're going to get on to the baptism bash uh, a little later this afternoon, okay? So first two verses, follow along with me. Here is how Peter begins this brief letter, five chapters, to these folks in these areas. He begins like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Now, why have we chosen... Excuse me. I was coughing back there uh, all during the Psalms, and I realized, you are not going to get rid of this cough. So turn my mic off for just a second, and let me do this one more time. Awkwardness is over. Why are we studying, perhaps it's over, why are we studying 1 Peter? Why this letter? Of all the 66 books in the Bible and the 27 in the New Testament, why this one? And here's primarily why we're studying this one. Because in 1 Peter, Peter begins to talk to a group of people that are all around this first century Roman world, primarily modern day Turkey. Um, and they were believers in Jesus and the heat was cranking up on their faith. The heat was beginning to be turned up on believers around the Roman world. Now, beginning in the late 50s and into the 60s, there was an emperor named Nero and Nero was going to become quite... uh, spiteful and quite hateful of Christians. And there's a lot of debate, and I read different commentaries about when First Peter was possibly... Uh, hey, thank you. Appreciate that, brother. There's a lot of debate in terms of the exact time that 1 Peter was written. But we're going to land on the early 60s. And this Emperor Nero is going to really turn up the heat... In the years to come, about 64, 65, he's going to persecute those that he claimed, uh, Christians he claims started a fire in Rome. And so 1 Peter is written to folks as the heat is coming up. Now it's not to a boiling temperature yet. That's going to come later, in the later 60s, on into the 80s and 90s for sure, through different uh, governmental authorities working against Christian faith, but nevertheless, the heat is turning up. And it's not yet to a boil, but if you read First Peter, you realize they're being persecuted. Mostly just verbally, they're being insulted. You, you see that, we'll get to that. But the reason we picked this book is because I think the heat is beginning to come on here. We're no longer in Kansas anymore. It's no longer Christendom. Christianity, and particularly those that take the Bible seriously, uh, are beginning to be more and more the minority, and more and more uh, slandered, suspect, sometimes persecuted, absolutely persecuted in other parts of the world. But the heat is turning up. And it's not yet to a boil, but Peter is preparing these believers to get ready for the boil. And so my hope through this series is to prepare us for the boil. To prepare us for the suffering that inevitably comes from following Jesus. Did you hear what I just said? The suffering that inevitably comes from faithfully following Jesus. Peter is actually going to promise us that that happens. That there will be suffering and persecution because of faith in Jesus. And the heat will begin to rise over and over or more and more, I should say. Now, the ironic thing about that is that Peter is the one telling us this. So let's look again at the first sentence, the first line, phrase, in fact. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter is writing this, and I'll get to why it's a surprise that he's telling us this in just a second. But first of all, we need to talk about what is an apostle. Just back to the basics here. Sometimes the followers of Jesus are called disciples and sometimes they're called apostles. What's the difference between a disciple and an p- apostle? Have you ever heard this before? Have you ever thought about this? Well, all followers of Jesus, even curious people that sat around Jesus or listened to him on the sea or gathered you know, on the mountain as he did miracles or taught, anyone that was even a casual follower of Jesus was called a disciple. And a disciple was a Hebrew word that just means pupil, student, a learner, a disciple is a learner. Now, you might think most commonly about the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. Why do we call them apostles versus disciples? Here's the difference. Anyone that follows Jesus is a disciple, but not all disciples are apostles. Did you catch that? Let me say it again. All that follow Jesus are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Apostle has a special role, a special place, and a special authority, and so Jesus, in Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 6, calls these 12 apostles who are given special education and special teaching that he's going to send out. And in fact, that's the word, that's what the word apostle means. Apostle means sent. Disciple means student. Apostle means sent. And so Paul is sent to the Gentiles. And Peter is sent primarily to the Jews. But all apostles are are sent. Now, in a secondary sense, in a minor way, we as disciples of Jesus today are also sent, but we don't call ourselves apostles because the apostles were required by Jesus' teaching, the apostles were required to have witnessed Jesus' resurrection, to have seen him in his resurrected body. That was a requirement. And so it seems that if you're going to see the resurrected Jesus... Uh, that the chances of that happening have kind of been minimized now. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to himself as the last among the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. So, all followers are disciples, not all disciples are apostles with that type of authority, but as Jesus' disciples, we also in a small letter A, not capital A apostle, but as a small letter A apostles, are sent out Monday morning to different places where we are supposed to carry the word of Christ, okay? In a small A apostleship kind of way. Following me? So Paul, I mean, Peter here is saying that he is one of these apostles, originally 12, then Judas becomes 11, then they replace him, and then Jesus appears to Paul, and he becomes an apostle. So that's what an apostle is, but why do I say it's interesting that Peter is giving us this message about suffering. It's interesting because Peter is the guy, in Matthew chapter 16, look this up later, that when Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross and suffer, Peter is the one that grabs Jesus by the arm, pulls him aside privately, and the Bible says in the Gospels that Peter rebukes Jesus. Rebukes Jesus about his suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're in a place of rebuking Jesus... That's not a very good place to be. And Peter found that out. And so what happened then? Then Jesus rebuked Peter. And he actually says, yeah, I know I said, you're the rock. Yeah, but right now, get behind me, Satan. Because suffering is part of the plan. First comes suffering and then comes glory. First comes the cross and then comes resurrection. First comes the crown of thorns and then comes the crown of righteousness. So, Peter, this guy that resists Jesus' teaching on suffering, is now preparing believers for suffering. And he's going to say in chapter four of this letter, Expect it. Chapter four, verse one. He's going to say in verse 12 of chapter four, Don't be surprised at the fiery trouble, the fiery trial that's coming your way. Don't be surprised by it. Expect it. So, Peter is writing this letter the guy who at one point said hey let's 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 not let's not be talking about suffering let's not be talking about the heat turning up jesus and now has become the apostle to warn us and prepare us for living in a broken world as suffering followers of jesus so that's the author the audience the next part here, we see who Peter is writing to, and this is the point that I made in the introduction. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he lists those five regions. To those who are elect exiles. Now, those are two troubling words, elect exiles. And it's actually an unusual greeting, an unusual title. If you want to spend some time later in Bible study, just flip back to the left to other New Testament letters and see how other New Testament authors introduce their letters. How do they greet the people? What do you expect? You expect, if you've read the New Testament much, that they're going to start their greeting by saying, hey, brothers and sisters, hey, church and Ephesus or Philippi, wherever you are. Sometimes, and this is surprising to us, but sometimes the authors greet us by calling us saints. Brothers, sisters, church, saints. But Peter's pulling a different one out here. He's not calling us the church. He's not calling us any of those things. He's calling us these two very troubling words. These two uncommon words compared to the other apostles, but nevertheless, the truth, these two words, elect exiles, elect exiles, and various translations render it different ways. If you have the New American Standard Bible, it's translated as aliens, or the NIV says strangers. Strangers. Or the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, living as foreigners. But the ESV, elect exiles. Now, I don't know about you, uh, this elect word we'll get to in a second, uh, very controversial. But that kind of makes me feel special. But this word exile... I don't like that word. I don't want to be in exile. I want to be at home. And I want to be comfortable in my home. A couple weeks ago, my parents pulled a fast one on us, and they sold their house, my house. The house that I grew up in, the house that we've lived in for 40 years, and they're here today, so you can give them a piece of my mind later. Some of you know, as I've talked about this, that this has been... That's my home. Like, I'm not going to go to Tulsa anymore. I mean, that is the acre yard that we grew up in, bicycles and four-wheelers and a creek through the back, and it was great for the grandkids too. But man, as I backed out of there the last time for July 4th, I was like, this is just weird. This is not gonna be my home anymore. And then last week, we took a little trip up because they moved to Oklahoma City. They thought that'd be a good idea. And... uh, and so we went up there to look at their new house and, and it, it's a nice house, I'm happy. It's a pretty house and it's three years old and it's, it's nice and it's got a smaller yard and it's really neat and everything. But I'm, going, I'm driving up there and I'm going up 35 and, and then I have to go, I, then I have to go through the wilderness of Norman, Oklahoma <laughs> to get to a place that's not even home. We long for home and we all have this imprint or this memory of home and as i've been thinking and wrestling through that and reading first peter and i'm realizing guess what that's not my home this is not my home and that is a paradigm shifting Reversal of American ideas and often evangelical ideas that this is not our home. Elect exiles, foreigners, that as long as we're in this life, as long as we're on this broken earth, we will feel a bit homeless exiled, longing for the memory that God has put in our heart, that memory of Eden, that longing for home, where we belong. But right now, we're aliens. We're foreigners in a strange land, wandering around, longing for home. And that's not just the story for Peter and those believers there, but it's our story and it's also been a theme through the Scriptures that we have left Egypt and we are headed toward the promised land. And even those that were headed towards the promised land didn't get the fulfillment of everything that they were longing for in the home that God has promised for them. Flip with me. Hebrews chapter 11. I just have to quickly go here. Oh, I'm going to have to speed up. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. Listen to how the scriptures describe Abraham's quest. Hebrews 11:9. By faith Abraham went to live in a land. Listen to this language of longing for home. Okay, by faith Abraham He went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, or let me skip on down to verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Underline that phrase right there. Having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity return. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is not our home. Let me say it again this is not our home. I love the combination here of the two things, the elect as well as the exile, it reminds me that it's two sides of the same coin. So I found a nickel, and I love that Peter has put elect and exile together right next to each other, because elect, this Bible word, okay, and this is not a theological word that Theologians have made up, but this word elect or predestined is a Bible word. And so we have to figure out what it means. But the idea of elect says to us, or it should say to you, that you're deeply loved that there's a security that you have in God, that there's a confidence that we have, that we belong to God. That's election, security, deeply loved, chosen by God, belonging to Him. But the flip side of the coin is exile. And exile communicates misplaced, some sense of insecurity, some temporariness that we're kind of outsiders looking in. Elect, loved, but exiled on the outside, right? Exiles are minorities. Exiles don't expect to wield power. Exiles speak a different language. They might have a different accent. Exiles have this memory, or if they're second generation exiles, they may not have a memory, but they have a story that they've heard and adopted of home, right? Exiles are bicultural. Bicultural. Exilers are exiles are outsiders. Elect and exile. Paul picks up the same idea Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. Paul explicitly says this. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where's our citizenship? In heaven. Now, most of us are citizens of this country as well. We're bicultural. But Paul was saying and Peter is Preparing these folks here, make sure you have the right expectations because you're in exile. And for these people that he was writing to, it was not literal. For some of them, it was the Jewish believers in these churches, it was literal. Or for the Gentile believers in these churches in these five areas, it was metaphorical. You're elect and your exile. Now here's here's the great irony for us and for so many today in the contemporary church and where we sit today. The great irony and the great reversal is that today we don't know our election and we don't know exile. We don't know our election and we don't know exile, meaning we're pretty comfortable in the world. they have kind of snuggled up and grown accustomed to this is home. But Peter's saying, it's not home. And to live in a world that's increasingly intolerant, if you will, to Christian faith and Christian values, one of the resources you're going to have to know you have to embrace is your belovedness before God that you're elect that he has chosen you which means he loves you which means he loved you before the foundation of the world that you didn't just choose him but that he chose you you are his people and Israel knew they were God's, they were God's chosen people through the Old Testament, right? And now in the New Testament, Peter is writing to these non-Jewish people, and he says, You are the elect of God. He has placed his grace and his loving kindness on you, which means no matter what suffering you face, he's with you. And you're his. And the suffering that you're facing doesn't mean that he's against you, he's actually brought it to you in His sovereign grace and will see you through it. You're dearly loved of God while you live in exile as a minority, as an outsider in a time that's going to be increasingly anti christian And he also writes further to, to enable us to prepare for this life in exile. He says, verse 2, that according, this comes according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, what's according to the foreknowledge? Is it the election or is it the exile? The answer is yes. Both. That he's sovereign in your salvation, and he's also sovereign in the circumstances that you currently find yourself in or that you'll find yourself in persecuted people in months and years ago. He is sovereign. It comes according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit, and you notice we sang holy, 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 the Holy Trinity, you have it right here. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all at work as we live this life, as we live as exiles. So, God the Father foreknew what was going to happen. He's sovereign over it. And then the next phrase is, in the sanctification of the Spirit, that's the growing holy because of the Spirit. And what he's saying here, I believe, is that the sanctification is going to happen, how? Through the suffering. In the exile, the Spirit is sanctifying us. So God is not surprised by it. He knows it's, he has all foreknowledge, he knows it's coming, and the Spirit is using these difficult times and these sufferings to bring us to holiness and unto or for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then he adds, and for sprinkling with his blood. This is not your home. But that's okay. You can get through it because you're chosen of God, you're his people, and it's not a surprise to him that you're going through this. He's got you. He's chosen you. He's with you. And in the midst of the difficulty, he is sanctifying you by his spirit as you obey Jesus Christ. And then he has this wonderful phrase, and for, spink- and for sprinkling with his blood, which is kind of a confusing statement. And for sprinkling with his blood. And most commentators think that this uh, sprinkling with the blood here is a reference to Exodus chapter 24, after they had received the law, after the Israelites had received the law, the priest sprinkled them with blood as they promised to be God's people and commit to the covenant of God. They were sprinkled with blood of bulls, right? And... Most commentators think that Peter is referencing here that idea, but the blood is not the blood of bulls, is it? It's the blood of Jesus. And the bulls, the blood that sealed the covenants in the Old Testament and ancient uh, rites and ancient uh, countries, you would seal covenants, you would sign covenants with blood. What Peter is saying here is the covenant has been signed, not with the blood of bulls, but with the blood of Jesus. And therefore, he's going to protect you and he's going to fulfill this covenant not by your blood or not by the blood of bulls, but by the blood of Jesus. See, as we go through exile, we have a God who has promised, covenanted, that's a hard word to say, covenanted with us to be our God so that we, are be, and we will be his people. How? By his blood, by the blood of Jesus, he guarantees that he will take us to our home, to our heavenly home. He sealed it with the blood of Jesus. And so as we go through difficult times, we actually have the blood of Jesus as a promise to comfort us. And in fact, we have the example and the power of the ultimate exile, don't we? Our Savior is the ultimate exile. Our Savior is the one who left his home and came to this earth. And Jesus, Jesus, the ultimate exile, came to this earth. And John says he came to his own who did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus lived in exile without a place to lay his head. And Jesus, our Savior, suffered unjustly to the extent of his blood so that you and I won't have to suffer the just punishment that we deserve. Jesus is the ultimate exile who came to this foreign country, redeemed us, bought us by his own blood so that we don't have to face just suffering our punishment with God because he took our place. Meanwhile, be encouraged. You're a son or daughter of the king. Be encouraged. You're a son or daughter of the king. But be warned. This is not his kingdom. This is not your home. Pray with me. Father God, would you prepare our hearts, would you prepare our lives to be ready to be slandered, to be ready to be shamed, to be ready to say unpopular things as we are exiles. And God, we thank you that we can do that with the confidence of being your sons and daughters because, as G- because Jesus has come into our country and rescued us from ultimate exile from you. God, may we focus our eyes, focus our hearts upon him as we live faithfully in this land. It's in Jesus' name we pray.